Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. I'm here with my co-host, Dean. Hello, Sophia. Hey, Dean. And today our guest is Professor Diana Valencia. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being here. Uh, Diana is an associate professor of physics and astrophysics at U of T Scarborough and cross-appointed with the Department of Astronomy. So you're our first guest that's not technically from Earth sciences, but kind of a related field. Well, um, that's exciting because I come from Earth sciences in a way, um, and it's good to be back talking to Earth scientists or people that are interested in Earth sciences. Yeah, that's awesome. We actually, we were talking a little bit before the episode and you mentioned that you had two supervisors. One of them was from earth science and the other one was from astronomy. So how did you, I guess, kind of pick between the two and, and yeah, talk a little bit about your, your research journey. Well, my research journey started, um, a while ago when I, uh, when I started university, I started actually in Colombia, and I started doing physics because that's really what I liked to do. But over there, I thought that I wouldn't be really be able to have a career in physics, uh, you know, just maybe teach and, and at a school level, and I wanted to do more. So I did economics as well while I was there. But then my family immigrated to Canada, and here it just became more obvious that I wanted to do physics, and it was harder to do a double major with economics. And then I had a really good professor, Professor Jeremy Trevica, who uh, actually left. He's now at Harvard. But he uh, really introduced me to the idea of thinking of the Earth, because I was in physics. And so he, he had this course of physics of the Earth, it was called. And he had me thinking about the Earth. And he gave me the, my first opportunity of doing a summer research program. And I highly, highly recommend it to anyone that is on the fence, because you really need to get your hands dirty to see what it's like. And so that's when I started. And um, I, I got in a master's program and a PhD program at the, at the University of Toronto with, with Jeremy Trevica, but he encouraged me to be ambitious, apply to the big schools, and I ended up uh, at Harvard University. But I ended up thinking, because I came from this stream of thinking about Earth, I thought that I was going to be a seismologist. And and seismology is beautiful with all the mathematical background that it has, but it just didn't, it wasn't really my calling. And I was in this class by Professor Rick O'Connell. Fortunately, he passed away. Uh, but he had this question that just grabbed me at the end of the class, uh, out of the blue, he's like, they're just people that are looking for planets outside the solar system. And, you know, they think that at some point they'll discover planets that may be similar to Earth. And if, if the Earth had more mass how big would it be? And I thought, that's a brilliant question. Like that is just, because that's removing thinking of Earth as, you know, a very special planet, as thinking one of very many planets. And what makes it Earth have the characteristics it has and how much mass plays its role, etc. And so I thought it was great. And that's, that's how I got in, but did, didn't think of that being my PhD. I just wanted to do that research project for that course. But it was so rich and so new. And so that's how I started. So I had that that became my PhD advisor, Rick O'Connell. But you needed all this astronomy background to really get 
to answer this question. So my other advisor was Dimitar Sasilov. And that's because they both of them had talked at some point, in, you know, meeting and had shared some ideas and, oh, you know, that would be good to, to know about this. And nobody has done it. Oh, great. I'll just ask about it in my class to see if anyone is interested. And so that's that's how I came to the field. And I'm very lucky because they hadn't discovered any of those planets by the time I decided to do that project. And, and so there was everything to be discovered. There was absolutely everything. And so that's my long answer to your question. I like that you said that uh, you needed to get your hands dirty and go into the field to actually, you know, find out about earth sciences. And that is something that all earth scientists and every guest in our episode has said before. But it's funny to hear that from someone who's in astronomy. So how exactly did those field-based courses, I guess, kind of help you? Or, or are there any applications from those field-based courses that you use today? No, so I'm sorry. What I mean by hands dirty, I don't really mean it in the sense of go out in the field and look at rocks and collect rocks, which I would love to do. I never did. I I sort of did in one class because I was a T and I had to learn it. So it wasn't that. It's more like if you ever think, is research good for me? The only way to know is that you actually do it. And it feels very different than any course because, and I and I see students struggling with the transition from having to solve a question that somebody already thought about how to solve and what the answer is and what exactly, how they need to phrase it for the person to get the answer, to having really an open question, say, we want to find this out and we have no idea what the steps are and we're going to have to ask our own questions along the way. And so that's the beauty of research and and the only way to, to know if that feeling is good for you is by trying it. And I mean by feeling is because you have to be very comfortable with being uncomfortable, with being, I don't really know where this is headed. I don't really know if, if I'm going in the right direction, I'm going to have to scratch it and then try something else. Because usually when you're doing a problem set, you sort of know. You sort of know because if your numbers are not rounding up, mm-hmm. if you're if it's getting too complicated, you're like, ah, this is iffy. Uh, but that's not, mm-hmm. that's not science in reality. It, you know, nature can be really complicated. So, so, and you cannot go check your answers with someone else. You have to find your answer and then find a way to check that you are right. And so it's different. And I obviously am biased, but I think it's wonderful. And I think that only by trying it, you know, if you're going to, you know, fall in love with that method. If any uh, listeners in the earth science department um, like like the sound of that, the Earth Science Department does have usually four or five uh, NSERC uh, grants available for students to work with in the summer with a professor or project of your choice. So I highly recommend you consider um, emailing back and applying to that kind of stuff. I've done it twice, two summers. I loved both of them. And that gives you that hands-on hands-on component. And Diana, I'm sure that there's also NSERC grants from the uh, Astronomy Department as well. Yes, absolutely. And we're always and I'm always looking for bright and motivated students because it's such a pleasure to work with curious people that are willing to put the work. It's it really is. And it's a satisfaction, hopefully for the student, but definitely for me. So I'm always looking for good students. In past episodes, we've talked a lot about Earth's mineral, marine and atmospheric composition. The more we learn about Earth as it exists today, the more we've been able to model Earth as it existed in the past. But what about taking what we learn from Earth 
both past and present, and using it to model other planets. This direct applicability is why Earth science is a planetary science. And much like there was once a flood of new data and theories in the 60s and 70s within the Earth sciences, today is somewhat of a golden age for studying exoplanets. New technologies and techniques have allowed us to hypothesize all the ways, all the new kinds of ways uh, we can think of planets as existing. And we're super glad to have someone today who can explore this avenue of planetary science with us. So with that, Sophia, could you please start the paper summary? Thank you, Dean. Now that we've sufficiently confused our listeners to what exactly in astronomy we're going to be talking about, let's move into some of these specifics. So um, as we're all familiar, our episode format, we read a paper. And this one was definitely uh, outside of at least my, I'm not going to speak for Dean, but definitely outside of my comfort zone. This is the first time that I read um, an astronomy paper. So this is really cool. And actually, what's really awesome about it is that it was co-authored by our guest, Diana. So she's the perfect person to talk about this uh, this paper with. And the overall aim of the paper is to understand the key processes in which a planet is formed by looking at the composition of exoplanets. So it's really a kind of, uh, I think it's a really seminal work. Um, So let's start our paper summary by going through some basic concepts that are really key to your study. So first off, the compositional data that you collected were based on two different categories of planets that you specifically selected. So you call these planets super-Earths and mini-Neptunes. So can you explain what these terms mean and why these are the exoplanet types that you focused on in your research? Okay, wonderful. Um, So many good things you guys just uh, talked about. So um, in, in terms of terminology, when we were discovering exoplanets and the first one that were discovered were Jupiter-like planets, big planets, because they had the most effect in the star, which is what we measure, there was no need to, to look for another new names. But as we got better with detection methods, they started, we started discovering smaller and smaller planets. And so the first things we had were the mass of the planets and then came the radius of the planet. And so the question was, if a planet has, you know, 10 times the mass of the Earth, is it a rock like the Earth or is it a scaled up version of the Earth? Or is it a scaled down version of something like Uranus and Neptune that has a mass about 14 Earth masses? So what happened is that we didn't know. And so at first, the terminology people use in a blanket statement was used in super earth because it was a sexy name and it alluded to habitability and so it's always appealing but looking under the hood we didn't know really what it was if it was a rock or if it was a planet with a little envelope and so only by looking at masses and radius we can distinguish between the two and sometimes even that we can't and the ones that have a little bit of an envelope we call them mini neptunes and the ones that have almost no envelope or no atmosphere, we call them super-Earths. And not to say that the atmosphere of the Earth is not important, it's critical for habitability, but we it doesn't really affect the radius of a planet. So when we look at planets, um, when we look at exoplanets, the radius position is not really large. So when we're talking about an envelope, we're talking about this gaseous layer that has an impact on the radius. So it has to be something about maybe 0.1 to 1% of its mass at least. And so it really is an atmosphere that changes the radius that really changes the structure of the planet. And just to connect and to to give a lot of uh, recognition to my advisors, the name Super Earth came from the first publication we wrote, actually. 
And it came from, you know, a discussion of what, how are we going to name these planets? Because the first thing we did is, you know, scale up versions of, of the Earth. And we thought just, you know, super Earth. And then we started thinking, okay, but what if they have a lot of water? And we thought, well, the Earth has water, so we can still call them that. And what if they have a lot of hydrogen and helium? Oh, no, that's not. And so this, this names evolved as well. So it wasn't just us, but the field also uh, started thinking about how can we name these things properly? Uh, and so that's where these names come from. They're trying to allude to the structure of the planet. But from mass and radius, sometimes we cannot distinguish between the two. I'm wondering, is there any more categories like mini Saturns or super, super Jupiters? Hot Jupiters? Yes, there are super Jupiters. There are hot Jupiters. So the hot Jupiters are the ones that are Jupiter, but you find in incredibly short periods, uh, three days. So in three days. So today is Monday. And so Friday would have been already a whole orbit of a planet. So that's how, that's how close they are. And we didn't expect them at all. And they still don't know how to form them. And there are many Saturns because really we see a whole continuum. We see a whole continuum of planets. Um, what is really interesting about the super so mini Neptunes is that they're very different, as I said. Having no envelope or having an envelope makes it really critical also because they must have formed differently or processes shape them differently, but there's none of them in our uh, solar system. And we also know from the Kepler mission that they are the most common planet in our galaxy. It's actually the most common astrophysical object in our galaxy. And somehow we happen to avoid them. We just don't, we didn't form them in our solar system. And so that's a big mystery. Why? Why wasn't that the case? And when we're looking at these super Earths or, or mini Neptunes, are they really two different populations or are they connected? We know that they have overlapping properties, but are they uh, coming from the same population and just evolve differently or were they formed completely different? Those are questions that we're trying to find out right now. We don't know them. Speaking about Jupiter, you mentioned that Jupiter and Jupiter-like planets, though the really big giants, are the first ones that we discovered because of how big their mass was. And so we were able to actually like, notice them. So this is this is a mystery to me. How do we even find out the mass and then the radius of a planet? Beautiful. So, and this is something that the first step might be hard to get around with, but then you get really you know comfortable with it. And is that we don't see the planet. If we see a planet, we call it direct imaging. It would be lovely if we could really separate the planet from its star. And so the photons that come from the planet would be we could distinguish the ones that are coming from the planet and the one coming from the star. But the contrast between the two is too large that we cannot do it unless it's very specific circumstances. So the planet has to be very far away and the planet has to be very luminous and so very massive. And so it's really hard. And so really you hear about all these exoplanets by using other methods in which we don't see the planet at all. We see the effect of a planet on the star. So if you think of a system of a planet and a star, they orbit around the same, uh, about the common center of mass. So the planet moves around the star, but also the star moves around the center of mass. They both move a little bit around the center of mass. And so that star is moving back and forth as the planet is pulling it due to gravity. And so from the Earth, what we see is the star periodically moving towards us and away from us, towards us and away from that. And when you look at the spectrum of the star, that spectrum changes towards the blue when it's coming towards us and towards the red when it's going away from us. So that sort of wobble, that periodic wobble tells us that there's a planet there. And the, the how much it shifts, basically how, how much that star moves 
um, and how far it is from the center of mass depends on how massive the planet is. So if it's a very massive planet, that star is going to be pulled much more. If it's a tiny little planet, it's going to be pulled very little. And so that's why that's how we relate our observations of the spectra moving back and forth to the size, to the mass of the planet. That's one of the methods. That's the radial velocity method. And that's the method by which we discover the first exoplanet. Um, it was called Pegasi 51b. And that's how uh, the, the Nobel Prize winners, uh, Didier Kilos and Michael Mayor, you know, that they were awarded the Nobel Prize because of that great discovery. And they discovered that in 1995, when we had, it was at the time when we had that first capabilities. It wasn't that we had them a while ago and we were observing and didn't find them. It was as soon as we had the capabilities, they, they discovered the first exoplanets. But it was still very daring for them and very careful processing of the data to get it because it wasn't established that really that there were going to be planets out there. Uh, and so they were really pioneers in this sense. How long do you have to observe the systems to get that kind of data? So you want to observe them at least three periods. But in some cases, if you, for some reason, uh, have less data, uh, you know, we have to make do. And it just, what happens is that the error bars are larger. And then the other method, just to complement, because it's really the one that has you know, taken off because of Kepler is the, called the transit method. Again, we don't see the, the different planet and the star as, as different entities. What we see is that if the planet passes in front of the star, uh, the planet blocks some of the light and it, 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 we call it a transit, but it's kind of like an eclipse. It's in between the, the, the us, the observer and the telescope and the star. And so it, it dims the light of the star periodically. Uh, and so we see this and, and this, how much dimming uh, that there is depends on the size of the planet with respect to the size of the star. So if the planet is very big, the signal will be very deep. And if the planet is small, the signal will be shallower. And so that's how we relate our observations to the size of the planet. And the reason why it's taken off is because once Kepler was launched to space, now that we got the precision uh, needed to small uh, to look at smaller planets from the ground. It's very difficult because of the atmosphere, but from space it wasn't. And so Kepler revolutionized the field because it just stared at one patch of the sky for three years plus, and just observed all these planets wobbling and transiting uh, around their their stars. And that was the telescope that told us that the most numerous planets were the super Earths and mini Neptunes because it just found them everywhere. So something else that plays a key role in your study is the relationship between the mass and radius of the planets that you study to the core mass fraction, or CMF, or the mass of the core of the planet to the total mass of the planet. So the concept of core mass fraction is an interesting one because we characterize Earth-like planets based on the CMF ratio. So for, exa for example, an exoplanet that has a CMF of around 32.5%, I believe, is considered Earth-like. But Mercury, on the other hand, has a CMF of around 63%. So I was wondering how the mass and the radius of the planet constrains the CMF exactly and what implications this has for finding the composition of planets. Okay, perfect. So now that we know how we get the mass, radial velocity method, and, how, and the radius, the transit method, now we say, okay, what are the compositions that that planet can have? Now that you have a mass and a radius. So the first thing to do is get a, you know, a bulk density. But that is very crude and not um, 
it doesn't capture really what is going on. So the planet, you can think of this something. So a planet of the size of the earth and the mass of the earth has the composition of the earth. But it could also be that we have much more iron. If the earth had much more iron, it would be more compact. And then just add some hydrogen and helium on top of it, and it would still fit the mass and the radius, but now with a different composition. And so that's what, and, and you can play this game with, instead of putting hydrogen and helium, now put water on it. And so you can have very many compositions that fit your mass and radius for this small planet. So we call this the generosine composition. And so we, we know that this is the case. So how can we use composition to help trace formation scenarios? That's, that's the, the, the key question that we're, and that we were using in our paper. And is that, okay, there's many that are gonna be in between, but there's some that are gonna be more likely to be rocky than others. So if the earth had a, an atmosphere made of hydrogen and helium, but had been born really close to its star, being that the star uh, sheds a lot of light and a lot of um, very high energetic particles, it would have stripped the atmosphere very early on in the very active phase of the star. And so when we use that piece of information, we think, okay, so we focus on the planets that are compact, so not very big, I'll, I'll explain to you in a second why, and very hot, it's more likely that they are rocky. Why do they not, cannot be very big? So there's a maximum size a rock can have. And so if you take the earth and took out all the iron of it from the mantle and the core, you would make you know, a pure silicate mantle ball. That's the biggest mass it could have. If I add more mass, it would have a larger radius. But again, that's the biggest size for a planet I can have. Maybe that was a little bit confusing. So the more iron I put in a planet, the more compact I make it. The, if I start taking out iron I, for the given mass, I'm going to have to put more silicon mantle. I'll make it bigger. Right, because the iron, some, so because of the gravitational pull, because iron is so heavy, it's pulling the planet inward. Because the iron is denser, exactly, because iron is denser and it'll just, it just packs. And so if I take it out and I replace it with, with silicate mantle, my, for the same mass, the earth would be bigger. So let me, let me put it this way. If instead of having, so the core mass fraction is the amount of mass that we have in the core that we think in the earth is made out of iron. And so if we had a core mass fraction of 10, meaning we had a lot less iron and we had almost no iron in the mantle, which is the case, we would be, the, the earth would be much bigger. And so there is a size, there's a maximum size that a planet can be rocky. If you take out all the iron and we call it the rocky threshold radius. Above that, if there's a planet that has a radius that's larger than that, it has to have volatiles that we call either hydrogen, helium, or water, because we just cannot make it any other way. And so we decided to not focus on those because the problem is once you start introducing these other components, then you have degeneracy. So if I only have core mass fraction or amount of iron in the core and amount of silicate mantle, I have two unknowns, but I also have two data points, mass and radius. And so now my problem is completely constrained. I don't have degeneracy in composition. If I know it's rocky, the planet, and I have a mass and a radius, I can tell you to a good degree What's the core mass fraction? How much iron to silica or iron to magnesium that planet has? So that's what we use to say, okay, let's sift through all the data and look at the ones, first of all, that have 
decent error bars because again, the observations are, are very difficult. So sometimes we have very large error bars. And when you're looking at the composition of planets, it really makes it impossible to do any inferences. So we had to pick the ones that had decent error bars and then say the ones that are uh, hot enough that we don't think would have a lot of water. Because if there was water, they would have been in vapor form and they would be really large. So as long as they're hot, being that they're not large, they have to be uh, most likely rocky. And then we went and looked at each of these planets and found out the composition of each of these planets, how much core as fraction it has, how much iron core to silicate mantle it has for all this sample. I think it was about 30 planets. And we can translate that to how much magnesium to iron or how much silicate to iron the planet has in this sample. And then we said, okay, if we look at the composition of the stars, if we look at the magnesium to iron ratios of stars, are they the same? Why? Because we think that when the planets are forming, the, it forms from a glass cloud and the, the, the star forms at the same time. And so the, the pre-solar grains, little grains that start condensing out of the nebula, they, we think, should have the same signature as the rocks that end up in the, in the star. So we call it primordial in the sense that they should be the same. Now they start aggregating from grains to bigger rocks and bigger rocks and up to planets. And then maybe they start smashing together, forming new planets, secreting planets, etc. And so does that process that we more or less understand, does that process change the composition of their initial composition, which we think is the same as the star in, in terms of ratio? So the star has a lot of hydrogen and helium, but the ratio of this iron to magnesium we think could be the same as the one for the rocky planets. In fact, that's what we use in the solar system. So if anyone has heard of chondrites, these are uh, meteorites, very primitive meteorites that we think have very similar composition to the star, uh, except that they don't have hydrogen and helium, but all the other compounds that are heavier and we call them refractory. Um, actually, that comes from earth sciences. All of these, all this jargon, this is from earth, this is from geochemists. So these refractory elements are the ones that condense out at high temperatures. So after the gas, when you have a gas and it's cooling, the first things to condense are the iron, the silica, the magnesium, etc. And so those ones, we think in chondrites, they have about the same ratios than the earth, uh, we think, and then the star. So, it, so with that very simple assumption that we have on the earth and solar system and, and, and some data to validate it, many people thought, oh, we can apply the same thing to extrasolar planets, but we took a different avenue and said, does the data support that assumption? Does the data support the claim? So now that we had that sample of 30 planets that we knew now the magnesium to iron ratio of all of them, then we compared it to the sample of, of stars that have planets and see if they compare. And what we found, first of all, the data is not so great. We want better data, but still what we found is that we have an excess of planets that seem to be enriched in iron with respect to the star. In line with what we see a little bit in the solar system, Mercury is enriched in iron with respect to the sun. People have some people have dismissed this because it's really small, it's an outlier, but we still need to we still need to explain its origin. And what we're seeing is that in this exoplanets, it seems like there's a there's an excess of planets. There's there's quite no, a few planets there that seem to be very very compact, very very iron rich, and we don't have a theory on how to form them at the moment. 
It's interesting. What I really liked about your paper is that it really seemed to use like the principle of Occam's razor, like really using, you know, using the, the iron to magnesium ratio that we know to be true. And it's probably likely that whatever we find in like in the in the sun or in in the in the star is probably similar to the one on the planet. It's like it's very it, it makes a lot of sense. And these assumptions, I'm guessing, are not only uh, supposed to constrain uh, the variables and allow you to actually make hypotheses about the composition of planets, but also kind of help you uh, understand the data that you're working with. So one thing that I find really interesting that you also did with your data is to initially compare it to Earth's differentiation model. So we know that Earth has differentiated in the past, and now we have these distinctions that most uh, Earth scientists, even, you know, uh, when you're studying Earth science in high school, you know that there's these uh, distinctions uh, in the Earth. So you have the inner, the outer core, uh, the mantle and the crust. So I was wondering how you brought your differentiation models and how it compared to Earth's. So thank you for the question. So we wanted to ask, does it have an impact a measurable impact, the degree of differentiation of a planet. So as you said, Earth is quite differentiated. A lot of, most of its iron ended up in the core. We have a little bit of iron in the mantle and that, you know, that's differentiation process, but we don't know exactly why we have only 10% of iron in the mantle. Why not 20? Or we think that Mars is about 20% of iron in the mantle. And so how does that get determined? Or, you know, what are the processes? And so, what we decided to ask ourselves is, does that have a measurable impact on the radius? So, for example, if the Earth wasn't differentiated at all, how big would the, would the planet be? Because if it makes a difference, then again, when we have mass and radius data, then we need to say something about differentiation to interpret the data. And so we, we, we did this uh, test, and for the Earth, I believe it's about... Uh, 3%, I think it would change the radius. So if the if the iron wasn't all mostly segregated into the core, but sprinkled in the mantle, the size would be about 3% larger. And most of the exoplanets that we have found don't have that good precision. The radius is about, well, actually the radius is about 2%, but the mass, the effect on the mass would be larger, about maybe 8% the mass. So if, if we were differentiated, how much more massive the planet would have to be to have the same radius that would be the the question to ask and it, the error is about eight percent but we don't have that good error bars in the data of exoplanets so we decided that we can ignore that for now but as the data becomes better that will become a factor clearly for the small planets the degree of differentiation is something that is we're going to have to take care of when we're interpreting the composition of these planets and for example the system trappist one if, if anybody's interested in exoplanets, just check that out. It just some really recent results of an exquisite radius and, and mass measurements for this planet, and it's going to be observed with JWST this year. So that's going to system that we're going to learn a lot about. And it's really cool because it's seven planets as well, very packed around an M dwarf star, so much smaller star like the Earth. So very interesting questions, you know, what are they made out of? And some of them could be habitable, are they, etc.? What can the core mass fraction tell us about the Earth or other planets in our solar system? So I, Sophia mentioned that the Earth-like is 32.5, while Mercury is 63%. Do 
does that mean like Mercury is mostly core? Yeah, so Mercury is mostly core. So Mercury is, is an oddball. It's small. It's only about 5% the mass of the Earth. And most of it is a iron ball in the core and a little bit of mantle. And so people think that it must have been a planet that was less extreme uh, with more mantle that just collided against something else and then its mantle got stripped. Uh, and that was the theory that a lot of people were going with until people started putting it to the test and say, okay, so if we have one impact, we can, we can do that. But within the formation of also Mars and Venus and Earth, do we get that? And it's not clear. And so, so that, that relates to how the origin of, of Mercury's um, core. But what other implications could it have is um, we think that it could have an implication on the evolution. So mantle convection on the Earth, its surface expression is plate tectonics and it brings volatiles to the surface and then it sequesters volatiles to the surface in this cycle that operates in billions of years and keeps the Earth's climate balmy, right? We have the amount of CO2 that we have because of this negative feedback cycle on Earth aided by plate tectonics. But there's there's been some um, some work actually by other colleagues at UTSC, uh, Julian Lohmann, but others uh, as well in the field that have looked at, does the core size change how convection happens and how the planets cool? And then that has implications as to how, you know, the volatile cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's still early on what we can say, because there's so many things that we can study. I don't think that has been studied fully, but just to say that it, it might have more of an impact that we have recognized so far. So it isn't just about composition. Then it goes into how does the structure of the planet affect its evolution? Because really one of the things that I'm trying to, to determine, which I think appeals to many people is what are the pathways to habitability? Is there only one pathway that the earth just happened to, to fall into? Or are there many pathways to habitability? And, and we don't know. That's really the answer. Not at this point. That is so cool. I never realized that there was such like a crossover. I mean, we have a pretty strong uh, like plate tectonics uh, group at, at uh, Earth Science U of T, uh, led by our, our chair, uh, Russ Piskowik. And I think it'd be really awesome to do like a crossover because he's trying to figure out mantle convection and, and how that affects uh, how that affects plate tectonics. It'd be really cool to have a crossover between your work and his. Yeah. So in 2007, we started this debate in exoplanets because... So I did scaling laws to predict that planets that were more massive than the Earth and had the same composition, you know, this terrestrial super-Earths would have plate tectonics. And I did. I thought that everyone would agree because really, you know, from scaling laws, very simple scaling laws, I even thought, you know, let's not make this a big deal. And then at the same time, there was another paper using numerical models that said exactly the opposite. And And since then, we've been divided. And so... For the longest time, people were like, why should we care? And I, I would say, well, one of the things we should care is that our models should predict the same thing. Like, even if we don't ever find another planet, this exercise of applying it to a more massive system, we should have the same results. But now we also recognize that it is important because of these planets and, and, and the role it plays in habitability. I would say the field is still somewhat divided. 
I'm biased. I think there's more people that agree with me, but there's some that don't. And so just to be fair, I think that uh, we've done numerical models to show that they do have plate tectonics, but some others have applied a different numerical model and they show that they don't. And so I think those details do matter. We agree in the very broad strokes, especially everything that applied to the earth, because that's our benchmark. But once you start extrapolating and pushing the, your, your system in different directions, there's disagreement. And so we need to pay attention to those details. Um, so it just makes it fun for somebody that does research that, you know, with time, we'll see who's right. It's like, you know, like, we'll, we'll see who has the last laugh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's okay. And, and even if I'm proven wrong, that's okay. I think that's, that's what science is all about. It's okay. You, you have an idea, you, you prepare to the idea, you just come up with it out of the blue. But, and then people come in and discuss it and try to reproduce it. And in that process, we all learn, no matter who got it, you know, partly right, completely right, partly wrong or completely wrong. Right. It's the means, not the end. Yeah. It's the means, yes. I was wondering, so I think what my biggest question is, is what major differences do you find between the composition of the exoplanets and Earth's? Many of the planets we're finding have a very similar composition to Earth, it seems like it, which is a nice surprise because out of all the things that we've you know seen in exoplanets that you have such an amazing variety at least there are others that really look like they could be Earth-like in terms of, you know, bulk composition. But there's others that are very peculiar. As I said, there's this super Mercury. It's very uh, enhanced in iron. So more, much more enhanced than what we think the star is. So how do they acquire them? And then on top of it, these are very highly irradiated planets. And so there's some one of the theory that's been put forward was that in this population of mini Neptunes and super Earths, if you organize them by also the amount of energy they receive from the sun, it seems like the mini Neptunes are colder, bigger, have volatiles, and that the rock, that the super Earths are more compact and more irradiated. So it seems that it could be a connection that you you start with something like a mini Neptune and you lose the atmosphere and end up as a super Earth. So that they are connected maybe in how they were formed, but the super Earths that were the ones, the mini Neptunes that were really close, lost their atmospheres, and now we call them super Earths because they're bare. Uh, and so, if that's the case, if that really is the case, it means that this, how much iron these planets have. So, because we're finding in our sample, there's some are very highly irradiated and huge cores. And so, if those are the result of atmospheric evaporation, that's what's called, you know, atmospheric mass loss then that amount of iron must have been set before the nebula, where the mini Neptune acquired its envelope from, was dissipated. And so it was very early on when the gas was still around. And the gas, we think it's about three to five million years old, whereas the Earth system, so the terrestrial planets took about tens of millions of years to, to form. And so it points to... Maybe supers are very, very different. The way I, I interpret our study is that this, are, this is our first step into really connecting composition of the stars and the planets to get to the questions of formation because it's only 30 planets and the error bars are still big. But that's going to get better. And so, you know, let's talk in five years and I can tell you how, how did this pan out. So I think for the moment we have more questions than answers. But that's good because before we didn't even have the possibility to 
ask these questions. And so, so this is where we're at right now. Was it mini Neptunes and Super Earths that you said were the most common type of planet, or was that hot Jupiters? No, both of them. So Super Earths and mini Neptunes, they're the most common. Hot Jupiters, they're not. We just saw them everywhere for a long time because they're super easy to detect. So we're biased against seeing them. It's about about all the Jupiters, about 10% are hot Jupiters. And so they're not too many. They're not negligible either, but they're just super easy to discover. So they were just there everywhere. Right. And and in fact, the Pegasi 51b was a hot Jupiter. And at the moment, because we were very biased towards explaining how the solar system formed, they thought that can't be a planet. That, you know, how can you find a Jupiter at three-day orbit? That cannot be a planet. That's more like a failed star, an M dwarf. That's just to tell you how much sometimes our preconceptions you prevent us from from really looking outside the box. It kind of reminds me of like an, an old time paleontology back, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. And you're looking at the prevalence of these kinds of forms of life. And all you have are the fossils, which are like the self-selection bias. Is it to what degree mm-hmm. is, is this prevalence of this organism, you know, how well it fossilizes versus you know, how, how often, how frequent it actually existed back then. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's similar to the, the planets trying to figure out what that is all about. Exactly. So when they came up with the idea that super Earths and Neptunes are the most common, they had to de-bias the sample because they're still got a lot of the big ones just because they're easy. So there was a lot of, you know, careful work in trying to, it's, you know, complete the sample. That's, that's what they call it precisely to, to just what you said, to adjust for for these biases in the data. So I guess we'll ask you our final two questions that we ask everyone, uh, real hard hitters. If you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences or planetary sciences or, or whatever, uh, what would it be? If you had the answer to whatever question. Oh no. Wow. Nobody has ever asked me a question like that. And I feel shocked. Totally unprepared. <laughs> totally. You've never had a genie before. <laughs> totally unprepared. No, I never had a genie or even thought about if I had a genie. Um, I would like to know if there's life somewhere else. And if the cherry on the, you know, on the cake would be, is there intelligent life somewhere else? What, do you, what are the odds for you? What do you place those odds on that? So bet? I think the first one is okay. I think knowing if there's life somewhere else, we're getting there. We are definitely getting there. Uh, you know, what kind of signals we can have in the atmosphere, what kind of telescopes we need to build, uh, you know, what kind of evolution the planet had to have. We are definitely working to our way towards that, answering that question. About the one of, you know, intelligent life, no, that one, that one we are light years away from solving it, I think. There, there's a quote I've heard several times where it's like, whether or not the, whether there's life everywhere out there or we're the only life there is, the answer is terrifying. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I, so, and this is my personal opinion, because this is, this is what I'm going to say is not scientific. It's just that, but it's based on some, some scientific evidence. And it's that, you know, microbes and small, little, simple life, they're very resilient. They can adapt to very extreme environments. We are super fragile. And so I, I, I would be very surprised if there's not a you know simple amoeba. I don't know something very simple somewhere else. I mean, it could be you never know, but I think that that is less of a stretch. But 
But the other one is uh, it, we might be quite alone, maybe. I don't know. And as you said, it's terrifying either way. But it's also, you know, I'm the sort of person that thinks it's better to know the answer than to not know. And then make the best out of the answer. Well, that leads me to my next question. And uh, it's in today's, you know, fluctuating world with uncertainties and, you know, everything that goes on, what brings you optimism? It's such a profound question what you just asked, because being a mother as well, I'm very aware of the kind of world we are building right now and the one that we're going to leave our, our kids. And there is so many bad news. It's um, if, if you get stuck on those, um, you can be shuffling your feet because it's just depressing. But at the same time, we have come together as a species to solve really big problems, really great problems. We have you know, eradicated smallpox, for example, that was no small feat. Yeah, this sort of collaboration that required for not only not only countries, but really, you know, political systems. And so I, I know that it's there. I know that we can do it. It's not, it's, it's really a matter of will. And what gives me a lot of hope is this new age of young people that are so committed to move away from the status quo. And I don't mean it just in terms of climate change, but move away from, you know, this capitalism that serves few and hinders so many. And just to just to try to go back to what's important, what's really, really important. And, and in fact, I think one of the things that hopefully we can get from the pandemic, not, not that I'm super hopeful about it, but, you know, what's really important are the things that we could close down and that was no problem, right? There was... We need food, we need shelter, we need each other, um, we need health. We don't need three cars, we don't need expensive vacations, we don't need a lot of services that, you know, in a capitalistic world they try to sell you. And, you know, maybe I'm going to get under fire for this, but I think hopefully we can get back to living more for what we do and not for what we have. And, and I find these young people are bringing that and I so want to help them ride that wave and contribute in whatever way I can. That brings me hope. I love that perspective. Oh, it's such beautiful questions, you guys. <laughs> we saved the best for last. Uh, <laughs> and Sophia, would you like to give our ending episode quote? Yes, thank you. Uh, so this one comes from Krista McAuliffe, who's a teacher and also an astronaut. So this is kind of perfect for this episode. So she said, space is for everybody. It's not just for a few people in science or math or for a select group of astronauts. That's our new frontier out there. And it's everyone's business to know about space. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So how do you get this quotes from people? Oh, so I, I just looked this up online. <laughs> Dean can quote Sagan no, for the rest of us. Yeah, we just No, no. I you know, let's 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 move away from the typical people we quote. So wonderful that you brought someone else. And you can even see it a lot with this pandemic that people see science almost as something they you know they cannot trust. They it's it's a manipulative tool and, and we need to change that for our own benefit and survival, really. Oh, we need to have our own separate episode about that. That is a whole other can of worms you're opening up that we'd love to talk about she was she was definitely brave um challenger explosion that's was how, how long ago was that 
That's a decade. That's like 86, 1986. I don't know, but yeah, that was a while yeah. ago. Oh, so she was, the, oh, she was the one that went. She was the teacher that died in the Challenger explosion. Oh, yeah. wow. Beautiful quote. Thank you so much for ending that quote for my episode. Just, oh, so many layers behind what you just, what she just said and, and you quoting her. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. It was really fun. So, uh, sorry if I babbled. Oh, no, that's fine. It was, it was interesting the whole way. Thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no rock unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 